Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Middle East Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and today I'm delighted to welcome Arbella Betchlimon to the show. Dr. Betchlimon is an associate professor of history at the University of Washington. She received her PhD at Harvard University and has written a number of books on the political, social, and economic history of modern Iraq. Today, we will be discussing her debut book, City of Black Gold. Oil, Ethnicity, and the Making of Modern Kirkuk, published in 2019 with Stanford University Press. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So we'd like to start these uh, interviews off by asking how you came to research uh, your project. And I'm particularly interested to know why you settled on uh, Kirkuk, a city which uh, compared to a lot of other Iraqi cities, has not uh, gotten the kind of scholarly attention. Um, right. Yeah, it hasn't had nearly as much scholarly attention as Iraq's larger cities, particularly Baghdad, um, or, or nearly as much scholarly attention as other oil cities in the Middle East. So the way that I started working on this topic was it started out as my PhD dissertation. So the book is uh, the revised and you know expanded and updated version of of that work, and it was in my first year of graduate school that I was taking a seminar on. Um, it was taught by Mary Lewis at Harvard, where I did my PhD, and it was called "The Scope of History," and the idea was to look at works of history that dealt with the notion of scope in some way by challenging the idea that history has to focus on um, national categories, the history of the United States or the history of Britain or the history of China, right? Rather than looking at the history of a country, maybe we look at the histories of cities or borderlands or bodies of water or other sort of alternative spaces that are not national spaces. And the uh, assignment at the end of that seminar was to write a seminar paper that dealt with scope in some way. So it was very, very broad. And when I needed to come up with a topic for that paper at the end of the semester, uh, we had just been reading works by um, people writing about boundaries and borderlands and sort of multilingual borderlands between countries. And so we were reading about this mostly in the context of Europe, but I found myself thinking about Kirkuk and it came to my mind because my mother's family is from there. My, um, my maternal grandfather worked for the IPC, the Iraq Petroleum Company in Kirkuk. Um, my father's father actually also worked for the Iraq Petroleum Company, but in Syria. And so I, you know, I had both my grandfathers worked for that company at some point, and um, my mother was born in Kirkuk. And so it's this um, multilingual city that cannot be easily categorized according to nationalist categories. So I found myself thinking about it in the context of these works, and I thought, well, this would make a great seminar paper. And what I found once I started researching it, thinking that, you know, I'll, I'll go find the, the few articles that have been written about Kirkuk and a few books and check them out and find some primary sources and write my 30-page paper. And I actually discovered that while there has been a lot written about Kirkuk, while a lot of people are very preoccupied with its history, and indeed the dispute over the city today is largely about staking claims to that history, about claiming that it is you know, historically a Kurdish city or historically a Turkmen city or something like that. As much as people were really, really preoccupied, even obsessed with making that case, nobody had written a work of history on Kirkuk that was based on primary research and attempted to tell uh, its story, you know, in a thorough way over the course of 
you know, the modern era. So I, I make that qualification because there are plenty of works of memory from Kirkuk. People from Kirkuk have put together sort of encyclopedic compilations of um, local sayings or photographs of local architecture or things like that. So I don't want to say that there are no books on Kirkuk featuring primary research, but there were no works of history you know, analytical history, right? There were no monographs, there were no articles, nothing like that, really. Um, and I was really quite surprised. I thought, you know, this this whole dispute is about history, and yet there hasn't been a lot of primary research on Kirkuk's history. And in particular, there had been virtually no primary research on the role of oil in Kirkuk's history. And that was um, very intriguing to me. And so it really felt like, you know, I started to write this paper and realized this is this is a much, much bigger topic, and this is going to have to become a book someday. That's great. Um, so you've alluded then to, you've alluded to petropolitics, right? And you've alluded to different uh, claims on on the city's uh, heritage. Could you just lay out uh, briefly, it, it sort of introduce us to the city and its people? Yeah, so Kirkuk is located about um, 250 kilometers north of Baghdad, the capital of Iraq. And it is um, south of modern Turkey. So it's south of Anatolia, very much geographically in Mesopotamia. Um, It is to the southwest of predominantly Kurdish regions in Iraq's northeast. Um, and it sort of, so it lies in this zone sort of between predominantly Turkish speaking, predominantly Kurdish speaking and predominantly Arabic speaking regions. And it is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Um, it's not quite up there with Erbil or Damascus, but it's probably, you know, top 10 somewhere, somewhere in there. Um, it's Citadel until it was cleared out in the 90s was one of the oldest continuously inhabited settlements in the world. It's a very, very ancient city. And um, so it has a very long history, long before petroleum transformed the place. And that makes it quite different from a lot of other oil cities in the Middle East that were often built for the oil company. They were new places built for a refinery or for uh, an oil field. And Kirkuk was already there. And it came to interact in very volatile ways with this company that came into a place with a very long history, a very diverse multilingual population, and created a new urban fabric and new inequalities and new politics, um, colonial politics and reactions to those colonial politics that really um, shaped the conflict that would eventually develop over the course of the 20th century. So um, thank you for the introduction to to, uh, Kirkuk, a city that um, people may have heard of briefly, but I I think it's it's often um, tends to be overshadowed uh, by cities like uh, Baghdad. Given that you've you've worked on on Iraq, before we talk a little bit more about the history of 20th century Kirkuk, um, I really admired your pretty frank discussion of problems with sources, um, not just for Kirkuk, but I think it speaks to sort of histories of of Iraq and and histories of the region more broadly. Um, and so you've talked about issues with imperial British archives, right, having um, uh, limited access to certain files. Um, there were documents, of course, that were looted and burned in the aftermath of the American invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also uh, really interestingly talked about the ethical dilemmas with documents that were captured during the U.S. occupation and difficulties of traveling to Iraq. There's so much that you talk about. I'm wondering, as a historian, just methodologically, how did you grapple with these challenges and end up being able to piece together enough to write uh, a story of of the history of the city? Yeah, yeah, it's major challenges. And I think that they're challenges that historians need to grapple with much more explicitly than I think we usually do. I think that the discipline of anthropology, for example, is way ahead of us on this topic. They've been, you know, grappling very explicitly with the ethics of their research for decades. And historians have kind of not felt the need to do the same thing. But Um, you know, my positionality is that of an American. So, you know, I was born in the United States. I have U.S. citizenship. 
And, um, you know, I have Iraqi family, I have Syrian family, but, um, that that's where I come from. And so I am an American trying to do research on a place in a country that has been invaded by the United States and occupied and whose, um, you know, the state of its archives and its heritage has been indelibly, you know, affected by the actions of the United States, right? The United States has removed archives from Iraq, has created conditions that make it, um, you know, unsafe to do research there through this, this, you know, voluntary invasion in 2003. Um, and so that, that is, an ethical problem. I think that there's no way to do this research that completely extricates you from those ethical problems. So the choice is either to, to simply not do it, to say, well, I'm not going to use problematic archives, imperial archives, looted archives, I'm just going to not not do that at all, or you choose to do it, but you have to sort of take it step by step and, and figure out exactly how you're going to do it um, in the way that you hope most benefits the people you're writing about. So there's that. And there's also, you alluded to the logistical problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you have to be willing to try to go to the place that you're writing about. And I did go to Iraqi Kurdistan, which is um, relatively easy to enter as a U.S. citizen. I, I carry a U.S. passport. Um, mm-hmm. I talked to quite a few people who had done research in other parts of Iraq, particularly Baghdad. And the ways, this, this was a while ago, but the ways that they had found to get into the country at that time were not avenues that were open to me. So I said, all right, I'm just going to go to Kurdistan and sort of figure it out from there. And I did manage to go for a month and I interviewed some people who had lived in Kirkuk and got some really interesting perspectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Didn't go to Kirkuk itself, ultimately. And um, that really just had to do with, you know, my decision regarding sort of security at that moment and, um, you know, what, what it would take for me to to drive there and and get in and you know I, I ultimately decided after talking to quite a few people not to actually try to go there um so then you end up having to creatively look at where you can find information you know anywhere else right so there is a, a vibrant you know iraqi and kurdish and turkish you know diaspora um, there are iraqis from kirkuk iraqi turkmen in turkey so you know i i uh, went and spoke to them as well. I went to Istanbul at one point. Um, I, I had the privilege, the immense privilege of having a good amount of research funding. I had multiple research grants. I was in a graduate program that gave me, you know, travel funds. And, um, so I was able to go places. I was able to spend a year in London. I was able to go to Greece, um, to use the archive of Constantinos Doxiadis in Athens. Um, he was a Greek urban planner who worked in the developing world, including in, in Iraq and had plans for Kirkuk and all sorts of really interesting things that gave me insight into what the Iraqi government was trying to do there in, um, the 1950s and the 1970s when his firm went back, um, in the Ba'ath era. And, um, so it, it took a lot of travel, which, again, took a lot of privilege, a lot of access to grants and um, time, right? Um, having uh, a graduate program that was able to sustain me for you know six years in my PhD program and then getting a, a tenure track position not too long thereafter. Um, you know, I had a lot of support that allowed me to go to all these different places and, and really piece together the story from a, a huge number of archives in multiple countries. It, it required going to many, many different places to write about one city. And then oddly enough, I did not go to the city itself. And uh, that, that is often what happens when you're researching places in the Middle East. Yeah, no, that is, that is certainly the case. And, and a lot of what you're saying certainly resonates with with my own story, my own work. Um, and and uh, I mean, on, on the one hand, historians have to be able to talk just logistically about how one does research and that, that absolutely needs to be a continuing conversation. Um, but but I do also appreciate your consideration of of ethical dilemmas and questions um, because I, I think as you said uh, it's something that historians are still uh, continuing to grapple with. Um, so thank you for your thoughts on on that, just sort of broadly historiographically, um, or rather methodologically. But now to to turn to Kirkuk itself. Um, one of the things that I I was really struck by was that you begin by illustrating Kirkuk as a place of liminal and and ambiguous identities. Um, It's often quite different than the way that Iraq is talked about today uh, with these sort of timeless ethnic and and religious identities. 
Um, you argue that ethnic politics w as such wasn't really a thing um, as Britain uh, con assumed control of, of Iraq. Um, and Kirkuk's position itself in the British mandate wasn't really clear. So could you talk a, a bit about the fluid identities, both of of the people and, and the city uh, at the beginning of the British mandate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we talk about fluid identities, one thing I want to start by clarifying um, not that your question implied it, but I think sometimes other people asking me about this often um, imply that fluid identities are somehow not real. And um, that mm -hmm. is often very um, you know, offensive to people from Kirkuk who, who are very proud of being Kurdish or Turkmen or Assyrian or Arab or, you know, to, for some you know, researcher to come in and suggest that this is a, an identity that was concocted in the 20th century. So right. to be clear, Kurds, Turkmens, Arabs, Assyrians, you know, what have you, uh, these people have long existed. These are not, you know, concocted or, or recent um, ideas. But ethnic politics, politicized ethnicity, and nationalism are very modern phenomena, right? The the idea that you would mobilize politically around those identities is very much a modern phenomenon, and that is what I end up tying to oil in the context of Kirkuk. That oil was this transformative force that. Um, created the ground in which these kinds of ideas could grow, um, both through its um, mediation of the forces of colonialism and uh, Baghdad's nation building, right? The, the um, attempt to integrate a place as diverse as Kirkuk into an Iraq that was identified as Arab did not leave room for people who weren't and institutionalized the other identities, right, as, as dangerous and problematic to the state. And that too solidified these ethnic differences in Kirkuk. So, um, you know, looking back more than a hundred years ago, let's say at the turn of the 20th century, there are Kurds and Turkmens and Arabs, and there are these um, many languages being spoken in Kirkuk. And certainly those lineages matter and those linguistic heritages do matter, but they are not the bases upon which people articulate their political interests or needs, and thus they aren't opposed to one another. But eventually, over the course of the 20th century, they do become uh, the determining factors, the primary determining factors in people's political interests. Interesting. So, and I'm, I'm kind of curious because I, I'm more familiar with the debates ab about identity surrounding religious identity, right? And and there's there are some who tend to argue that religious categories, and I suppose in this case ethnic categories, are are primordial, right? And and thus, even if they're not constantly creating tensions, right? There there's almost this sort of this potentiality, right? Where you know. If if something economically or politically arises, you could have these these eruptions of of intercommunal violence. Um, but you uh, and then there are there are people on the other side who who seem to suggest uh, that in fact it's a you know these these tensions are a product of of modern times, right? Of of colonialism, of the spread of global capitalism, and and its un unevenness in the region, and so on. Um, and if if I read your your contribution to this debate, um, insofar as ethnic identities are concerned, uh, it seems like you argue that the British colonial project actually kind of created these dividing lines, right? That they weren't just exacerbating old tensions, but you you talk about Britain inscribing this this new sort of ethnic logic to people um, that that didn't really exist before. Is that, is that a fair assessment of, of what you're arguing? So I would distinguish between inscribing ethnic logic, which I think is a good way of putting it and creating ethnic identity, um, mm. which I think they didn't do. So um, they certainly inscribed ethnic logic on mm. the people of Kirkuk. So if we go back to the era of the British mandate in Iraq, which was between um, 1920 or 1921 and 1932, during this era, Kirkuk was part of a region that we now recognize as Northern Iraq, um, but that at the time was disputed between this, you know, sort of Anglo-Iraq, right, the British mandate of Iraq, and the newly formed Republic of Turkey, which was claiming the whole territory, including the city of Mosul and Kirkuk, um, down to... Um, 
you know, at least as far south as Kirkuk. And this area was known as um, the Mosul Vilayet um, in the Ottoman era. And so this this terminology sort of carried over the Mosul province, essentially. So the, the province of Iraq in which Mosul was the largest city named after its provincial seat um, was something that uh, the Republic of Turkey was claiming as part of its territory and Iraq was claiming it as part of its territory. And so this dispute eventually was mediated by the League of Nations and both British authorities, British authorities who were, you know, uh, heavily um, advising the League of Nations commissioners and the commissioners themselves who were Europeans and, and, you know, sort of bought into European racial and ethnic logic and were applying that in Northern Iraq. Um, they were really looking for ethnicity or what they actually called race. Um, we might a little anachronistically apply our concept of ethnicity back to that, but they were actually using the term race at the time and talking about the races of Northern Iraq, the, the Kurds and the, the Turks, as they called them, and the um, the Arabs and then the Christians, which became a, a Christian, of course, is not a racial category, but it became kind of a racialized category in this context. And um, they tried to look for distinct political interests between these groups. The Kurds want this, the Turks want this. They were actually frustrated that they couldn't find that, um, that in fact, political interests weren't predictable by those categories. Now, the fact that those ideas were inscribed certainly helped to create a precedent later on for their solidification. But what's especially interesting to me is that you don't actually see those ethnic categories catching on for a while as sites of political mobilization. In fact, if anything, other trends for a couple more decades actually end up predominating and pushing back against that. So prior to the eruption of ethnic violence in Kirkuk after the revolution in Iraq of 1958, just a decade earlier, the predominant form of political mobilization in Kirkuk was um, the consciously non-sectarian Iraqi Communist Party, which orchestrated a huge strike of Kirkuk's oil workers in 1946. And that organization at that time, this eventually changed, but at that time was not associated with an ethnic group and was very much a consciously non-ethnic and non-sectarian movement. So even though... Europeans had sort of imported these ethnic categories and this ethnic logic. It was not actually something that people on the ground sort of wholesale uh, adopted and adapted. It took a while for that to happen and other trends pushed back against that tendency for a while. Um, you would see sort of sectarian or ethnic flare-ups uh, on a couple of occasions, but it took a long time for that to become institutionalized. Well, thank you for for the contribution. I think to that argument, um, it's it's helpful for people. I think not only working in ethnic studies, but I know it it generated a, a lot of thoughts uh, for me in in my own work on again primarily religious identity. Um, so you you alluded them briefly to the to the communists and and to oil. Um, so I I want to then talk talk about that period right after Iraqi independence from the British in 1932. Um, you talk about the rise of the oil industry in in Iraq more broadly, but especially in Kirkuk. Um, so what what effect did oil have on uh, these Kirkuki identities in the 30s and 40s? Yeah, so the 30s and 40s is really where the whole thing starts. And that's also the point where those ethnic identities have not yet really become sites of mobilization. But that's the point where the oil industry is starting to tremendously transform, you know, what Kirkuk looks like and the kind of place that it is. Um, so essentially this started when the Iraq Petroleum Company, which is a, a foreign-owned company registered in Britain that had a, a a monopoly on Iraq's oil at the time through a, a 1925 a deal that was negotiated in 1925. Um, so this this company comes in and explores, and they know that there's probably a lot of oil in the Kirkuk area because it had been seeping up through the ground for millennia, and people had been collecting it from these little seepages in the ground and using it for things like lighting lamps. And um, so there was even a, a very minor oil trade, but not one that involved digging uh, more than sort of shallow holes into the ground. So they come in with their major industrial drills and, you know, start digging for, for large sort of commercial oil fields. And in 1927, they strike one in Kirkuk. And the oil um, strike was so massive, it very nearly caused an environmental disaster. They had trouble bringing it under control because it would have, the oil would have flowed into the Tigris 
and very, very narrowly averted that problem. Um, a few drillers actually died in that initial oil strike because it was so intense. Um, and so they, they soon realized that they're dealing with a super giant oil field. And so the IPC, the Iraq Petroleum Company, which I'll call the IPC for short, uh, moves its headquarters to Kirkuk in 1931. And with that comes the demand for workers, comes the demand for drillers, as well as eventually a, a salaried staff. Um, though initially they're looking for Iraqi labor to, to do the drilling. And then with time, they start hiring, you know, sort of more educated people um, to work in the offices with a salary. And the, all of this coincides with a global depression. Um, and a lot of people who had previously made their living through agriculture in rural areas no longer able to do that. So they start moving into Kirkuk en masse and taking these um, very dangerous daily wage jobs working for the oil company uh, as, as drillers. And gradually... As well, people with a higher social status, especially those who knew English or were able to learn it, um, who had you know more access to education, started taking those those office jobs in the IPC. A lot of those office jobs were were reserved for expats, but gradually they hired more and more locals. And this is where you start to see within the company an ethnic divide. And as far as I can tell, in my research in the IPC archives, I haven't seen evidence that the IPC explicitly um, divided people by ethnicity. I haven't seen evidence that they said, well, we're only going to hire Kurds for this and you know, oh, we don't want Kurds for our office jobs. We want to hire Turkmen. I, I haven't seen any evidence of that, um, oddly enough. But uh, I, I say oddly enough because we do see evidence of that kind of explicit ethnic discrimination in other oil companies in the region, but I actually haven't seen that in IPC documentation. But there is an ethnic divide because these geographical and sociopolitical um, socioeconomic, I should say, divides do correspond to ethnicities. So the people moving in from rural areas taking those daily wage jobs are mostly Kurdish. And the people working in the offices were largely Turkmen and Assyrian. These were the, the groups that um, were more likely to know English and were more likely to have uh, you know, access to the level of education they needed to do those, those jobs as far as the company was concerned. And within the company, these groups of people were very segregated. Um, they never associated with one another. Their um, you know, their meals, their access to, to hospital wings and everything was, you know, sort of completely physically separate. And they lived completely physically separately as well. And so gradually you start to see this divide emerging. And it's particularly important when you consider that nearly half the city at one point relied directly or indirectly on the IPC for their livelihood. Um, either they were employees of the IPC or they were their family members. And so when the IPC is the single largest employer in the city, and it has that kind of explicit socioeconomic and ethnic segregation going on within its ranks, that starts to have ripple effects on, um, you know, social and political life in the city. So, um, and, and then, so you talk a, a bit about, um, not just the social impact, um, but you talk about the, the impact on, on urban development and you know your your discussion of oil generally it, it intersected with a lot of uh, a lot of new and exciting literature right i certainly thought of um bob vitalis's work on uh the haran and, and saudi arabia and how the united states exported segregation um explicitly and and opposed to the the sort of incidental way that you seem to argue happened in kirkuk um and I was also reminded of theories of development and the rise of expertise and all of that. But one of the really interesting contributions I think that you make here is cultural history. Um, you argue that the oil boom led to not just a, a transformation of Kirkuk as a city, an urban and social space, but a, a reimagining of Kirkuk's past and, and its present. Which led, which tied a, a Kirkuk uh, sort of civil civic identity to oil, right? It became the city of black gold. So, how did this happen? Yeah, well, oil creates conditions that um, lead to the kind of economic development projects in Iraq in the 1950s that um, create. Uh, a larger literary culture, for example. So basically there's a rise in literacy in Iraq for a number of reasons, including oil revenue. 
um, in the mid 20th century. And with the rise in literacy, there's a flourishing of print culture and more people are able to read and participate in that kind of discourse. Um, and what I've found is that, you know, I, I'm certain that there must have been a really vibrant, you know, oral history and, and literary discourse in Kirkuk prior to the rise in literacy. I, I have not been able to find um, a whole lot of evidence of that. But then, of course, it gets written down, right? And um, once it becomes a matter of print culture and, um, you know, local printing and local intellectual production, then you start to see a couple of trends. One is this um, attachment to Kirkuk's ancient past and the um, the juxtaposition of that ancient past with its prosperous present through oil. So oil represents modernity, which is the logical outgrowth of this glorious you know, ancient past of Kirkuk. And then the other thing that you start to see is those previously inscribed ethnic identities now are discussed as um, taxonomies for understanding Kirkuk. So um, they, the works about Kirkuk that you start to see being written in the 40s and 50s will say that, you know, in order to understand this place, you need to understand its peoples. And these are its peoples. They are the Kurds and the Turkmens and the Arabs and right. They start dividing people up um, by these categories um, that had previously not been as dominant in most understandings of the city. So something about written um, discourse helped to shape these distinct identities starting in the mid 20th century. And that had a lot to do with literacy. Interesting. And I, I think it's important to, to bear in mind, uh, bear in mind cultural history. And it, it's, it was striking to me to see, I mean, oftentimes when we talk about the emergence of, of civic identities as a result of growing literacy, print capitalism, so on and so forth, it's usually the, the you know, sort of turn of the, the 20th century. And so it was interesting to see another moment of, of sort of renewed cultural literacy, um, a, a bit later, you know, sort of in the 1940s and 50s. Um, yeah, I think that has to do with it being a provincial city, right? It's not Baghdad. It's not Istanbul. And so, you know, literacy rises there perhaps a little later. Right. Um, which is great. It's, I mean, it's an uneven process and I, I think an important reminder of that. Um, so then you, you focus on a couple, um, I, I suppose, more, more standard political moments in the history of, of Iraq, and, and you narrate the history of the city through these moments. Um, the, the first, of course, being uh, Abdul Karim Qasim's rise to power and then his, his overthrow, you know, his overthrowing the Hashemite monarchy in 1958. Um, and you argue that during this period, uh, it's very disruptive for Kirkuk. There's a rise in, in uh, intercommunal strife. Uh, particularly between the the Turkmen and, and Kurdish populations, um, what what fueled this conflict, and how is it tied to the uh, the end of the Hashemite dynasty? Yeah. So, um, as recently as the prior decade, as I said, in, in the forties, um, the Communist Party had dominated um, political mobilization in Kirkuk, especially through the the oil industry. This is how they organized. They organized through. Um, heavy industries in Iraq. and um, But at the time, really was a non-sectarian movement. Now, by 1958, the Communist Party and the Kurdish national movement have aligned with one another. And increasingly, communism and Kurdish nationalism are closely associated in Kirkuk. And this has a lot to do not just with those two movements aligning at that historical moment, but also with emerging um, socioeconomic division. So... Kurds who tended to be less well off, who tended to have the daily wage jobs, um, who tended to be the urban poor um, moving in from the countryside, tended to be more likely to align with the Communist Party. And then the Turkmen, you know, middle class landowners, um, sort of these separate classes that um, had a socioeconomic status that was very different from the Kurds, they tended to be anti communist. So in Iraq's revolutionary politics, you immediately, if, if you look at it from the perspective of Baghdad, you immediately have a divide between um, the sort of communist pole and the Arab nationalist pole, 
um, the, the, or you might even see it as the Iraqist versus the, the Arab nationalist. And um, the way that that maps onto Kirkuk's politics is it becomes a Turkmen versus Kurdish battle, which if you pause for a moment and think about that, what that means is that the Kurds are aligning with the view, uh, with the group that would more traditionally be seen as Iraqi nationalist. And the Turkmen's are aligning with the group that you would, again, if you were oversimplifying, you'd see them as Arab nationalists. And this does not make sense. Um, why would Turkmen's align with Arab nationalists? But in the context of Kirkuk, it became a pro and anti-communist kind of battle. That's basically what it was in, in 1958. Um, so that, that's how this, this uh, conflict perhaps very oddly maps onto a very different um, landscape. In Kirkuk. And so then you have that landscape of conflict, and then there's a spark that sets it off. And the initial spark that um, set it off was Abdelkarim Qasim um, reaching out to Mustafa Barzani, the exiled leader of the um, Kurdish national movement, and inviting him to come back to Iraq in October of 1958. And he tours Iraq and he goes to Kirkuk and his presence in Kirkuk basically sparks riots between the people who support him and the people who don't. And, um, you know, the Kurds see this as their opportunity um, with the influence of the communist party in Baghdad. They see this as their opportunity to, you know, take over, um, you know, local institutions as communists and as Kurds. And then Turkmen see this as themselves declining in their own city. And so it becomes a, a battle between those two groups that takes place in public spaces. And that tendency toward public um, tension and riots and highly visible and, you know, sort of spatial claims to the central space of the city um, ends up spiraling out of control in July 1959 in a set of demonstrations that take place on the first anniversary of the revolution, which was July 14th, 1958. So exactly one year later, on July 14th, 1959, you have these competing uh, pro and anti-communist, you know, Kurdish and Turkmen demonstrations in the center of the city that ends with... Um, a, a long, you know, a couple of days worth of, you know, massacres of mostly armed Kurds attacking mostly unarmed Turkmen's. Um, and this was the by far the worst outbreak of ethnic or sectarian violence in Kirkuk in its modern history. Nothing like this had happened before. And it fueled a cycle of intercommunal, you know, sort of fights, retribution back and forth uh, that extended into the 1960s. So one of the things that I was so struck by um, with with this particular episode is precisely as as you laid out um, that it, it wasn't necessarily intuitive. Right. And I, I think that that's also the case, frankly, for um, for the rise of the Communist Party, which, as, as you mentioned, tended to mobilize against ethnic and sectarian lines um, at the same time yeah, ended up for a variety of of uh, local factors fueling uh, fueling tension between different uh, different sects, which just in my mind speaks to the to the complexity of of these sorts of of identities. and it's something that's always worth bearing in mind um, as as historians and scholars. Um, the other then major moment would be the the rise of the the Baath party right after uh, uh, Qasim is overthrown. Um, and you you talk about how uh, Kirkuk's history is tied to the the broader tensions between the Pan Arab Baath Party based in Baghdad and Iraq's Kurds, um, and I'm I'm curious not only uh, I guess how how this unfolded, but I'm I'm struck by the fact that Kirkuk and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it, it falls outside of the eventual. Uh, semi-autonomous KRG, right? So how um, how does Kurdish nationalism and, and sort of pan-Arabism intersect with the history of Kirkuk? Yeah, so Kirkuk is just not a, a long-standing space claimed by Kurdish nationalists or Arab nationalists as of the 50s. Um, so the Kurdish national movement had been active for, you know, for decades uh, by 1958, um, but its center was not in Kirkuk. Kirkuk was very much its uh, southern periphery, really, um, rather than its center. And the main 
uh, arenas of contestation, you know, the, the areas where the, the Kurdish movement fought Iraqi troops were, you know, were mostly outside of Kirkuk. It was, it was to the north and the east. Um, you'd see much more of that, you know, in the more predominantly Kurdish areas. Kirkuk was really kind of a borderland, uh, kind of a, a transition you know, area or, or a, more of a contact zone between these different groups of people, but not, not really in the center of it. And that starts to change after 1958 as the Kurdish national movement, um, you know, mobilizes against the, the Iraqi government once the um, sort of tenuous alliance with the Kurdish movement collapses after those events of July 14th, 1959. So those, those events were not just important to Kirkuk. That might sound like a highly local thing, but it's actually uh, has national and, you know, broader sort of repercussions as far as the alignment of the communists with Qasem. Um, so... Once that alliance breaks down and there's no longer any hope of, you know, the Kurdish movement having any kind of, uh, of alliance with Qasem, um, then the Kurdish movement starts to make its presence known in Kirkuk. You get, um, you know, oil workers are being kidnapped by, by the KDP and being held hostage. And, you know, these kinds of spectacular attacks continue through the rest of Qasem's rule through the 1960s and then through the Ba'ath era after 1968. Um, so that's how the Kurdish movement starts to operate in Kirkuk. And then you see the, um, sort of rhetoric that follows after that Kirkuk now becomes central to the Kurdish nationalist imaginaries, whereas before it had been at best peripheral, um, in the Kurdish nationalist imaginary. And then you have pan-Arabists right now, um, the, rise of pan-Arabism in Iraq initially didn't have that much influence in Kirkuk in a predominantly non-Arab place. But once pan-Arabists come to power through the um, rise of the Ba'ath Party after 1968, now they want to integrate these problematic non-Arab areas into an Arab Iraq. And so the Ba'ath Party starts to take many measures to um, expel Kurds and Turkmens and other non-Arabic speaking people, including Assyrians, from Kirkuk um, through things like uh, seizing plots of land for government control and giving some, some meager compensation to the people who live there and then prohibiting them from buying land in the province. So then they're forced out, right, expelling people, um, as well as changing people's uh, registration, their ethnic registration to, you know, sort of coercively changing their registration to Arab if they speak Arabic, which um, by the late 20th century, most Iraqis did. Most of them have been educated in Arabic. So the 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 um, sort of creeping influence of Arabism had been, you know, coming in for a while through, at least through the educational field, through centralized education, um, the coming, you know, policies coming from Baghdad. And increasingly now people are forced to, you know, coercively forced to self-identify as Arab or they're exiled from Kirkuk. So it starts with these kinds of measures. And then eventually um, the most, you know, horrifying conclusion of the Arabization campaign, as they called it, was the unfall of genocide of the Kurds in the 1980s. Now that did not occur in Kirkuk that occurred in areas to its um, north and east. So uh, Kirkuki Kurds were not deported en masse as part of that genocide, but it was conceived and executed from Kirkuk. Kirkuk was the headquarters of the Northern Bureau of the Ba'ath Party, and Ali Hassan al-Majid actually conceived and executed the genocide from his office in Kirkuk. And if you look at the patterns of ethnic division in Kirkuk, um, you know, it's, it is not surprising that some of the deadliest crimes of the Ba'ath regime would emanate from that context. And once that um, became part of the Kurdish memory of oppression, and, and I should also mention that um, there was a, uh, a major uh, Iraqi military camp outside of Kirkuk through which the um, Onfall uh, deportees were processed. Just about everybody who survived this genocide went through this camp at some point. So they were all taken to Kirkuk. Once that becomes sort of central to their memory of oppression, it becomes even more central to the Kurdish nationalist claim. So, um, and I, I know it goes kind of beyond uh, the territory that historians nor normally cover and, and just a, a tiny bit beyond your book, but I'm, I'm curious um, where Kirkuk now falls in in post Ba'ath 
Iraq. And obviously your answer today will be different than, you know, six months from now or a year from now. But uh, given uh, a resurgent um, uh, Kurdish movement, given, you know, the, the fall of the, the Pan-Arab Ba'ath, um, where, where does Kirkuk feature in, in contemporary Iraq? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, contemporary Iraq post-2003, right. there have, there's been a lot of discussion of where Kirkuk fits into the new um, political landscape, basically, that has been created by a new government, a new parliament, a new constitution. Um, and one of the themes of Kirkuk's politics since 2003 has been the inability to figure out how it fits into Iraq's national politics. Uh, there have been elections postponed or not even held in Kirkuk because they couldn't figure out how to write the electoral law in such a way that Kirkuk would fit. Uh, and so essentially Kirkuk's politics have become strongly institutionalized as ethnic politics in much the same way that in the rest of the country, um, you have this crude Sunnitia sort of uh, political taxonomy, which is um, not necessarily representative of people's actual interests or opinions, but it is the way that politics have been institutionalized. Increasingly, your political interests are determined by whether you're Sunni or Shia, whether you want that to be the case or not. And the system that the uh, provisional, you know, the transitional government uh, of the, the coalition provisional government, as they called it, um, set up after 2003 in Kirkuk um, relied heavily on ethnic categories in the same way that it relied heavily on sectarian categories in other parts of the country. Now, there are Sunni and Shia Kirkukis, um, but that divide, at least in 2003, was not one that was institutionalized, right? It was more about Kurds, Turkmens, and Arabs. So, um, and then, you know, of course, Christians become the sort of racialized or ethnicized fourth category, even if that's not, uh, doesn't make much sense as an ethnic category. And so then these different groups have competed for influence within Kirkuk's local government, provincial government, through these categories. Um, predominantly, Kurdish nationalists seek to um, bring Kirkuk into the sphere of the Kurdistan regional government. And for a period of about three years, it looked like they, they may have done so um, after ISIS took over neighboring Mosul in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, the Kurdish Peshmerga troops who had been um, in the vicinity of Kirkuk for many years moved in and took Kirkuk um, on the pretense of, you know, protecting it from ISIS. And then basically, you know, more or less borderline, you know, annexed it to, to the KRG region. As you uh, previously recognized it, Kirkuk was outside of, of the, the Kurdistan regional government, uh, the autonomous region, right? Um, so they basically sort of de facto brought it on board with that region and then went so far as to hold a referendum, including in Kirkuk and in the KRG domains in September 2017 on Kurdish independence. And that referendum found that indeed um, the majority of people living under you know, Kurdish uh, administration wanted to be independent. Now, the results of that referendum were never broken down by region, so we don't know how many people in Kirkuk voted that way, and there are plenty of non-Kurds in Kirkuk who didn't support the referendum, but it was held there. Um, that was the result, understandably so. Um, there, there are understandable reasons why Kurds would not want to be part of Iraq, given the history I've just mentioned. And the immediate response was an Iraqi government takeover of Kirkuk in a, a very quick sort of coup that threw out the Peshmerga in October 2017. So for a period of about three years, um, Kurdish troops occupied Kirkuk, and then it was very quickly taken back by Iraqi troops. Many Kurds fled the city in fear. They didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and in fact, many of them blamed um, the uh, Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, as the, uh, the uh, architect of those operations because the Iraqi militias that actually carried out the takeover of Kirkuk, they saw as being, you know, directly under his command. And um, so some of them even celebrated, as we speak here today, this is very soon after the, the uh, U.S. airstrike on, on Soleimani in Baghdad. Um, some of them actually celebrated that. Um, I've, I've seen sort of like social media posts from Kurds being like, haha, this guy was terrible and you know, serves him right. You know, he, he kicked our people out of Kirkuk. And, um, you know, so uh, the way that Kirkuk's politics map onto what's happening in, in the rest of Iraq still continues to be distinct the same way that it was in the Ba'ath era or in the 1958 era, where you see these trends in other parts of the country that kind of manifest differently in this, in this um, space where people mobilize around ethnicities that aren't 
prevalent in the same way in other parts of the country. Um, and it continues to be a place that has not been served well by anyone outside of Kirkuk. There are all these external interests competing for influence in the city that I think don't often regard the desire of people who live, th who live there to um, try to find a way to function together amid a history of profound mistrust and, you know, violence for which there has never been any real recognition or, um, or reconciliation. And, you know, the people who live there have, have very basic concerns about wanting to live their daily lives in safety and, um, and coexistence. And um, those have not been served well by Baghdad uh, or, you know, the Kurdistan regional government or any other, you know, external power, certainly the United States that has meddled there. Well, thank you so much for such a, a rich conversation that intersects with, all, I mean, this this book's got it all. It's got, you know, there's nationalism, eth ethnic and identity politics, uh, petropolitics, oil. Um, and uh, um, so thank you for, for unpacking some of that for us. Um, at, at the New Books Network, we like to end just by asking you, uh, what what is next? What's on the horizon for you? Uh, what sorts of projects are you working on now? Yeah, I think when you finish a book, there's um, things that you wanted to explore in the book that didn't make it in. And so that's my immediate um, task. So I have a couple articles in the works. Um, one looks more broadly at oil in Iraq as a source of um, political dispute and political anxieties. And, um, you know, one of the questions I ask in this book is, what does it mean for a dispute to be about the oil? And I talk about that in the context of Kirkuk. Um, you know, we, I think we agree that its disputes are about oil, but what do we really mean by that? And I, I want to look a little more broadly at the question of um, what that means for Iraqi politics when we talk about a certain invasion being you know, the, the U.S. invasion of, of Iraq in 2003 was about oil or um, the reason why this group and that group are disputing Kirkuk is because they want to control its oil. But, um, you know, where did that whole idea come from exactly and what does that really mean? Um, so this is one of the things that, that I am working on an article about. Um, a couple of other sort of smaller bits of, you know, sort of spin-off stuff that didn't really fit into the book manuscript. And then um, as far as, you know, bigger future projects, I'm turning my focus south and um, looking at Iraq's view of its position in the Persian Gulf. Um, I'm particularly interested in its relationship with Kuwait. And um, the reason I started to think about this issue and started to gather sources on it is um, I discovered doing my research that the um, the southern margin of which Kuwait is, is perhaps the most obvious actually bordering Iraq is as much a part of um, Baghdad's desire to uh, export influence there as the northern margin. You know, so Kuwait and Kirkuk almost have these like parallel positions in Iraqi nationalism. And uh, so I, I'm really interested in uh, looking at that further. And I'm in very early stages of researching that topic. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for sitting down and talking with us today. Thank you. It's been great.